Well, how are we doing today, Flatirons? We're good? Awesome. Hey, I want to give a uh, big shout out to those of you tuning in online right now, uh, as well as our other Flatirons campuses. And what I want to do here at Lafayette is I want to welcome, okay, all of our guys in our God Behind Bars campus right now. Can we do that? Let's give them a big round of applause. Now, I know that you don't know me, all right, and uh, that, that's okay. My, my name's Patrick, and uh, believe it or not, uh, this church has had such an impact and been so influential in my life. Every pastor needs a pastor, and your pastor, uh, Jim, ha- has been that for me uh, for many years. You guys are so privileged to have Jim as your lead pastor here, and, and I know you know that, right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Almost a year ago, uh, we helped start a church back in Evansville, Indiana. You've probably never been there before, and you never will go there before. It's all right. Uh, So we we start this church, and I got to tell you, there have been several moments where we don't know what we're doing or faced with a decision as a lead pastor, like, what what direction do we go? How do we deal with this kind of person? Like, what do we do? And and so that's where Jim has come into play, and and Flatirons, you guys have been so uh, crucial for us because we oftentimes just do what you guys are doing, you know? And uh, I got to tell you, I feel like that kid in algebra or chemistry class taking a test, and I don't know what in the world I'm doing, but I also happen to be sitting next to the smartest kid in the class, and so I just look off his paper and copy it. And only this time, it, it's acceptable, right? And, and so I tell you that so that you know you're not just having a profound impact here in the greater Denver region, but all throughout the state and all around the world. Uh, Flatirons, you are making a difference, and so uh, it is just awesome. What, what an honor it is to be here today. Uh, Believe it or not, I have known the Bergens for almost my entire life. Uh, I grew up in their home back when they lived in Kentucky. Uh, Jim and Robin's son, Jordan, and I were were best friends growing up, and uh, you're not going to believe this, okay, but uh, Jim was actually the first parent of all of my friends that actually punished me and sat me in time out. You laugh because you're like, what in the world did you do, Right? Well, evidently, at the age of seven, that's how old I was, I had quite a foul mouth. And if you don't believe that Jim actually sat me in timeout, you sure as heck aren't going to believe why I was put in timeout. Evidently, in the Bergen home at that particular point in time, it was off limits to use the word sucks. (laughs) And I got to tell you, as Jim is punishing me, I'm confused. I'm confused. My seven-year-old mind, I can still vividly remember it. I'm confused because that was a word that I had learned from him. (laughs) And so, Jim, I know you're watching right now. That timeout sucked. (laughs) 
I want to encourage you to be praying for Jim and Robin during this time of rest, and uh, I know that God is using this time to rejuvenate them, and uh, I am so excited to see what this next season is going to look like for Flatirons Church when Jim comes back, because I believe, okay, I believe that God is preparing Jim to come back to Flatirons to lead this church to new territory, to, to greater impact, the best is yet to come for Flatirons Church. I believe that. <clears throat> and so in the meantime, I go out of your way to encourage and, and support your staff. You know, there's something about working uh, in a church. You just get criticized a lot and you just deal with a bunch of just stuff and uh, unpleasant stuff. And um, I remember several years ago, I, I, uh, I had transitioned to the lead pastor role at, at the church where I was at at the time. And um, I, I had been on staff there for a few years. And um, a few weeks into this new role, it became very evident that people viewed me a little bit differently because of that new title and that bigger title, you know. And, uh, uh, apparently, I had really offended this elderly lady in our church because of what I wore when I taught on Sunday mornings. I mean, I had so disrespected her, that was evident, because I had the audacity to show up to church wearing nothing but jeans and a button-down shirt. And to her, that's not what a real pastor dresses like. This is not what he should be wearing when he preaches. And, and so she decided to, to take her opinion to the bulletin under the prayer request section of the card. Interesting prayer request. It was, of course, it was anonymous. And, and what she said is she said, our pastor certainly doesn't know how to dress Instead of looking like a real pastor, he looks like some slob walking into Walmart. Now, I gotta tell you, I, I found no offense to that whatsoever because I love Walmart. <laughs> and so every bit of me just wanted to respond and, and say, I know, we'll talk about it later, Mom, all right? And <laughs> that's not true, but... And so encourage and support your staff. You just don't know uh, what, what they're dealing with. And, and there's something about church in general where our brokenness and sometimes our dysfunction and sin uh, just becomes more evident. We, we get closer to it. Why? Because we're, we're all a mess, right? I mean, we are all flawed, imperfect people. And, and there's never, ever been a perfect church before, and there never will be a perfect church before. And do you know why? Because you're in it, and I'm in it. Right, And we are imperfect people. I, I tell our people at the Hills Church that, hey, you know what? If we haven't disappointed you yet as a church, just give us a few more weeks. I mean, it, it's bound to happen because we're broken. We, we, aren't, we, aren't yet, we aren't yet complete. And so then that's where Jesus comes into play. And, and whenever I say the name Jesus, a lot of us walk into church with different perceptions and opinions and beliefs that have been built over time based upon what we've heard or you know, certain perceptions that we've taken into account or things that have just been passed on to us. And, and so we're all kind of hanging on to a different version of, of Jesus. And, and so what I want to say is, is how you imagine Jesus determines how you respond to Jesus, Right? Therefore, we can make the case that the most important thing about you is what comes to mind whenever you think about Jesus, right? 
The most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about Jesus. And, and so I want to look at a very popular story today that, that I hope is going to challenge, press, and kind of lean into some of our perceptions of Jesus. Because is it possible, is it possible that the version of Jesus we're hanging on to is false? It, it isn't real. It's merely an illusion. Is it possible that Jesus is much greater, much stronger, much more sovereign than, than, the, than the version that, that we may be following. How many of you have uh, watched the movie Talladega Nights? Come on, don't be ashamed. Yeah, a lot of us. You remember that scene when Ricky Bobby is sitting down at dinner and he's praying and all of a sudden they get into this dialogue about you know which version of Jesus they like to pray to and it's Cal Naughton Jr., the great theologian and scholar that speaks up and here's what he says as they're talking about the version of Jesus they, they like. He said, hey, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I wanna be formal, but I'm here to party. Kind of like a mullet, business in front, party in the back. And so we tend to modify Jesus based upon our preferences. And so this story that, that we're going to look at today can be found in the book of uh, Mark. If you uh, have Bible or Bible app on your digital device, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there now. Words will be up on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, regardless of which campus you're at, there should be some Bibles available uh, in the back. Uh, th those are for you. Uh, Mark serves as kind of like a biography about Jesus, all right? Towards the back of the Bible goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all right? And uh, uh, Mark gives us a, a very kind of detailed account of the life of Christ. And again, this is a biography of Jesus. And, and so in this story, in this story, we see Jesus' power, his authority, and his strength really come to surface. And so in verse one of chapter five, and take a look at, at what we read. Jesus is, is out on a boat. It's late at night. Okay, they're all tired. He's with his 12 followers, his 12 closest friends. And and they're just looking forward to, you know, getting to the hotel and, and, and going to sleep. It, it's been an exhausting day. They're docking their boat right at this town when this happens. And so here's what Mark said, verse one. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. Now let's time out here for just a second, okay? Now I know that... There are a lot of us here today who, you know, you're just not there yet with this whole Jesus thing, right? You don't know what you think about this whole idea of faith. In fact, you don't even know how you ended up here, right? You feel like you don't belong because you don't consider yourself all that religious. And, and to that, I'd say, look around you. We're not all that spiritual either. We're not all that religious either. We're just doing the best that we can and following after this Jesus guy. But, but for you, the, the basis of your doubts and the reason why you can't get there with, with Jesus and you don't know where you stand with God is because of stories like this that are just a little bit mystical. It doesn't make sense. It's a little bit irrational. It's just weird, right? I mean, strange, evil spirits, really? I mean, how do you prove that? How do you prove that? I mean, you know, I know my mother-in-law, she's got some issues, but, but how do you prove, not mine, I love my mother-in-law, but I'm just speaking for you, you know, maybe how you feel. And I gotta tell you, there are a lot stranger stories in the Bible than this. And if you've ever read your Bible, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, let's just talk about Moses for a second. Moses was a leader in the front half of the Bible who God used to lead his people 
people at a, a really crucial point in time. And, and so when God called Moses to, to actually rise up and lead his people out of slavery, Moses is just chilling out in a field one evening and, and he's walking in when all of a sudden God appears in the form of a burning bush. I mean, how did that conversation go when he got back to the house and told his family and friends, hey, God just told me something. Really? How do you know? Well, it, it, it came in the form of a burning bush. I mean, how did they respond to that? Yeah, sure, Moses. You know what? We think maybe you've been burning some bush. But here's the deal, you will always struggle with the other claims of Scripture until you first wrestle with the claim of Scripture. It's easy to get sidetracked and to lose focus on what the real point and main focus of the Bible is all about. Believe it or not, there are actually some things in the Bible that are more important than other sections and other teachings. What do I mean? Well, a guy by the name of Paul, he, he said it like this when he was writing to a, a church back in the first century in the city of Corinth, and, and he goes on to say, hey, when I was with you and I was talking and, 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 and preaching and pastoring you and caring for you, I passed on to you what was of first importance. Okay, so what, what, what wasn't of first importance was, you know, you make sure that you believe that creation happened in this way, and, and you believe that when Moses led God's people out of slavery, that he actually parted, that, that, that's not what was of first importance. He goes on to say, look, the claim of scripture goes like this, that Jesus was God in the form of man. He claimed that, but then proved that by not only predicting his own death and resurrection, but then, here's the crazy thing, he pulled it off by crashing his funeral. And so you know what? If you can walk out of the grave and you can interrupt your own visitation, I'm with that guy. And so do you think that, do you think that a God who can triumph over death, do you think that it's possible for him to manifest himself in the form of a burning bush or to split the Red Seas or whatever that looks like? It's easy to get distracted by other claims of scripture that's why I want to say, hey, first, where do you stand with Jesus? What, what, what do you believe about this Jesus guy? Well, let's get back to our story here. <clears throat> Jesus and his buddies have been ambushed by this guy who had been living in a graveyard for uh, a while and understand that this graveyard was more than likely about two miles outside of town. Day and night, living among the dead was home for him. Now, back then, okay, graveyards were far away from civilizations and in towns. It was off the beaten path. Why? Because the Jews were taught that any contact with the dead, all right, made you unclean. Therefore, you were unfit to show up to church on Sunday morning. You would have been rejected uh, in, in the synagogue. No one would have socialized with you because they would have been putting their own reputation at, at stake. And so chances are, this guy was on the wrong end of an angry mob that decided, hey, this guy's worst moment is his defining moment, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to bound him up and throw him out. And so like that Lady Gaga song the band sang a second ago, this guy gave his community a million reasons, right, to, to totally let go, quit the show, and reject him. You know what that feels like? I do. Look at verses three through five. Mark said that this man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. And this dude was ripped, right? 
Whenever he was put in the chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Okay, so he didn't just wake up one day with chains around his wrists and ankles. I mean, I'm willing to bet, I'll go out on a limb here, that, that living in the graveyard probably wasn't one of his life goals Right when he graduated high school and he had to give a quote for the yearbook about what his 10-year plan was, it probably didn't include living in the local graveyard. And we don't know a lot of his backstory. And although that's the case, that this guy had been rejected from his community because of either something that he had done or because of something that was done to him. I mean, he didn't mean to get addicted. He didn't plan to, to end up divorced. It wasn't his intention to, to get fired. He, he fought against his, his anxiety and mental illness. He, he didn't sign up for depression. It's not like, hey, I, I want that. It wasn't his fault that he grew up without a dad. He, he couldn't help being abused as a kid. He was simply the victim of circumstances. He shouldn't have been there, but, but it's what happened. And, and he, he was a kid. How is he to blame? And so if I'm him and I put myself in his position, the greater pain is being tormented by regrets every moment of the day. Conversations in your mind that go like this, you know, what, what if this had gone differently? And, you know, if only statements probably ran through his mind all day long. You see, he had become a slave to his past. I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that that's where a lot of us can identify with him. You know what I mean? And so here, here's the first takeaway I want us to notice in this story. Okay, and take your phone out, take a picture of the screen, write it down. <clears throat> it goes like this. <clears throat> you are not yourself by yourself. You are not yourself by yourself. You see, isolation can cause our brokenness and dysfunction to grow even stronger and become more rampant in our life. And so accusations get repeated in, in our mind and, and you become consumed with why life hasn't turned out the way that you thought. And, and so the, the longer we hide, the, the more we fear being discovered. I mean, if I was found out, if she knew who I really was, if he knew what, what I was struggling with. And so apparently the only way to keep this guy contained and controlled and, and interfering with others was to just chain him up and throw him out. And yet Mark said he snapped the chains and smashed the shackles. I don't know this for a fact. The Bible honestly doesn't tell us. But I wonder, I wonder if, if cutting his wrists or giving himself bruises was the only thing that would give him relief and take the focus away from the mental torture and the emotional pain that he was plagued with every second of the day. You know what that feels like? I mean, dark thoughts, horrific memories paralyzed him. I mean, this, he wasn't made for this. This wasn't God's plan for his life. But you see, as far as, far, wow, <laughs> As hard as he fought for deliverance, as much as he was wanting to fight for freedom, he, st he still wasn't free. I mean, as much as he was trying to own it himself, he was still bound up. He, he, he was still rejected. And so here's the thing. No matter how far you, you've run from Jesus, there's nothing, there's something inside us that tells us we were created for something more and we were created for freedom. And you know that. 
But here's what we often miss. We can't save ourselves. I mean, if we could, we would. And so for some of us, the deliverance that you need, the deliverance you need isn't necessarily the, del- the, the deliverance that you want. And so my concern is a lot of us are about to tap out, walk away, because the deliverance that you need isn't what you want. And, 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 and we want, as Americans, as people who are independent and take a lot of pride in ourselves and want to be self-sufficient, is, is we kind of want to help God out by, by cleaning up our life and, and making us more lovable. And, and so we, we run after this illusion, but, but the, at the end of the day, it only leaves us feeling emptier and And wanting more, and yet you will never find freedom until you believe that that you can't save yourself. There's a lot of pressure there. My story goes like this, all right? Nobody, nobody gets between Jesus and me more than me. Nobody gets between Jesus and you more than you do. Let's pick back up in in verse 6. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and and bowed low before him. So with a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, "What, what is your name? You notice how Jesus first attacks the identity because he knows this isn't a behavior issue. This is an identity issue. And yet Jesus doesn't flinch here in the face of terror. He's not bracing for impact. He hasn't tightened his fist. Jesus doesn't turn around and make sure that his 12 followers have his back because he knows when he would need them most, they are nowhere to be found, okay? They are as fickle as the day is long. They certainly aren't gonna have his back right here. And, and so Jesus was fearless in the face of terror, in the face of darkness, and yet he still managed to see this guy for who he was becoming, he made him belong. He made him belong by crossing some social barriers. Here's what I mean by that. You see, in the first century Jewish world, it was a big deal who you associated with out in public. Because basically, if you had a conversation with somebody, let alone a dinner with that person, and other people saw you, that meant that you approved of every decision that that person had made, their lifestyle choices, who they married, and and the list just goes on and on. And so basically, who you talked with out in public was who you identified with. Therefore, okay, Jesus having a conversation with this demon-possessed man was really putting his reputation at risk. I mean, if a local rabbi or priest heard what Jesus had done, there's no question that he would no longer be allowed in the local synagogue to worship God because he would have been deemed as unclean. He would have been tossed out and rejected. And yet, the first thing Jesus commanded was for this guy to experience healing and, and restoration Because beneath the chains, the sliced wrists, the bruises, and foaming mouth, he saw a good man. He saw a good man who was reflecting his image. This guy had just simply forgotten who he was. See, underneath it all, he saw a man made in God's image who had simply lost his way. Jesus wanted to know his name, and evidently one demon spoke up on behalf of the many evil spirits that were controlling him. The name Legion okay, was a term used to describe a group or battalion of about 6,000 Roman soldiers. All right, so there's a lot of demons in this dude. <laughs> I mean, talk about frightening, 
right? And so the next thing Jesus knows, as he's trying to make a beeline to the local hotel or motel or whatever, all right, which do you know the difference between a hotel and a motel? A hotel is where you can walk out of your room into a hallway. A motel is where you walk out of your room into a drug deal. I just threw that one in there. That's free, all right? All right, so... (laughs) And so the next thing Jesus knows is that he's thrown into the middle of a fight over one man's life. And, and so the demons were waging war for, for, this, for this dude's soul. And you know what? They were winning up until this particular point because they had isolated him. And you see, Satan knows if he can get us by ourselves, if he can isolate us, if he can get us away from community and away from others, we are much more vulnerable to attack. And so they had almost sealed the deal and it ended this dude's life and... And Jesus shows up, and you know what? Their power was nothing compared to the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. It's why we can say with confidence, regardless of what happens in our world, no matter the darkness that that takes over our country and that we see time and time again, look, if you are a follower of Jesus, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Demons flee at the name of Jesus. And you can make a strong argument that this guy had given Jesus a million reasons to give up and look the other way, and and yet here's where it gets real for me. Okay, Jesus surprises me the most when I deserve to be loved the least. And I bet that's the case for you too. Jesus surprises you most when when you deserve to be loved the least. So so here's another takeaway I want us to to take a look at that we pick up from the story. It goes like this. Number two, belonging comes before believing. Belonging comes before believing, and, and you guys are so privileged to have not just Jim teaching, but Jesse and, and Ben Foote, who is just an amazing communicator, and these guys do an awesome job of communicating this value week in and week out, that, hey, we, you, you belong here even if you don't believe like we do. And so the, the only chance this guy had of becoming his potential was if he could get to the point in his life where he believed that he was a good man. You see, becoming the man God created him to be meant, meant believing I meant believing that his past didn't have to determine his future. It required believing that, that Jesus was greater than the wounds from his childhood. Jesus was greater than his, his first marriage. Jesus was greater from that moment he pressured his girlfriend to get an abortion. Jesus is greater than all that. He can deal with it. And so let me lean in a little bit to the culture that every single week you're creating here at Flatirons when you show up. And, and whether it's, it's passive on your part or whether it's very active on your part, all of you are contributing, whatever campus you're coming from, you're contributing to the culture here. At flat irons. And so my question for you, my question for you is this. Do the people who crawl in here, given this church thing one last chance, know that they can belong before they believe or behave? You see, if the message of Jesus is for everybody, then our job is to make sure that our environments aren't an obstacle to anybody. So I love that one of your values is excellent environments. You don't want for there to be a wall for anyone trying to find Jesus. Did you notice what Jesus didn't say to the man when he charged at him? 
I love thinking about this, okay? Because what, what Jesus didn't do is he, he didn't run back to the boat, run back to the dock because he was just appalled at this guy's sin. You know, he was just too corrupt. He, he just couldn't even fathom and, and you know, uh, allow his mind to be taken there. That's not, that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't, you know, go on some rant on Facebook like you'll just never believe what this guy was doing and, you know, oh, aren't you holy, right? That, that's, not, that's not what Jesus did. Expecting people to believe before they belong would be like saying, hey, I'll start going to the gym once I lose 15 pounds. Like, what's the point? That, that's the entire purpose of the gym. That's the entire point of belonging is so that our beliefs can change and in turn, with time, our life changes. And unfortunately, so many churches have this backwards, don't they? There's an unspoken moral code that you, know, you must live up to in order to belong. But you see, a ministry patterned after how Jesus lived would mean including those that you naturally wanna exclude, people that you wanna keep at an arm's distance. Well, because when we read the biographies about Jesus, we, we read how he, he associated and identified with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the outwardly rebellious, the really broken and messed up people who just totally screwed up their, their life. And so that means for us today, Flatirons, Jesus is for the addict. Jesus is for the, the alcoholic. Jesus is for Raider fans. <laughs> you clap for that. That's unbelievable. And that's taking it too far because I think Jesus would draw the line there. Raiders fans, sorry. So far gone, can't save you. I remember uh, a couple years ago, we moved into a new house and I was meeting our neighbor behind us for the very first time. And it was about eight o'clock at night. His name's Tom. And uh, I'm having a conversation with him. It lasted about 10 minutes. And and Tom is um, just using a whole lot of four-letter words. And my little kids are, are right there. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's cool. That's awesome. And, and again, that, I'm not offended by that whatsoever. I know Jim, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> and so he, he's using words in ways that I didn't even know you could use. Like, very creative on his part. And so about uh, five minutes in, he just pauses and says, so what do you do for a living? I said, well, you know, actually, uh, I'm a pastor. No lie. The next thing he said was, well, praise the Lord. (laughs) All right, sure, yeah, amen, you know? (laughs) And so it's easy for us to get offended if that's our mentality. And so are you looking to build a bridge or build a wall? It's as simple as that. It's easy for us to notice differences and look for reasons to exclude people, but you know what? The church is a place where we should care more about building bridges than putting up walls. The message of Jesus is offensive enough, and so nothing else in the church should be. I tell our staff that all the time. Look, we get no extra points for making it more difficult for people who are trying to find Jesus, who are trying to find hope, and and trying to find meaning in their life, and and yet we want to make it more difficult, and we want them to, you know, take more steps to find Jesus. Let's just get out of the way, point them to Jesus, and then Jesus will fix them, right? And so let the church be a place where that can happen. And so how far are you willing to go for people to belong so that they have a shot at becoming who God intends them to become? Dallas Willard is uh, one of Jim's favorite authors. He, He once wrote this, the gospel is less about how to get to heaven once you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. 
You see, the kingdom Jesus is establishing is where you belong. You see, it's in this kingdom where we discover who we really are and how we were meant to live. And the upside down thing about this kingdom in this life is that the king actually gives us access to his power and his authority. And it's the same power that's displayed here in this story where Jesus triumphed over the demons. And so if it's true that we have that same kind of power available to us today here at Flatirons, following Jesus means, okay, it it means that we live from victory, not for victory. Because if we're living for victory, that's enslavement. How do you ever know you've done enough? John's biography about Jesus records this one tiny little detail that's really interesting. When Jesus is first arrested and is gonna be put through a fixed trial and then ultimately hung on a cross, Jesus is in this garden praying with a couple of his buddies. He thought he could count them, but they were sacked out to sleep and Roman soldiers come to, to arrest him. Now understand, okay, these guys were Rome's elite. They were like the, you know, special forces, Navy SEALs, Green Beret, all rolled into one. John said that they actually came with all their weapons, their shields, their swords, their, uh, they had torches in their hand. I mean, they were ready if Jesus wanted to bring the heat. And, and so Jesus says, hey, wh- who are you looking for? And, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and so Jesus said, well, I, I, I'm he. John then tells us this, that as soon, as soon as he made his identity known, all of these dudes immediately fell back and landed on their face. They could not withstand the power of recognizing who Jesus is. That detail tells us, that's like John's way of saying, hey, make no mistake about it. The cross wasn't, you know, a fist fight that Jesus lost and then he had to go there. The cross wasn't, you know, uh, Jesus being weak and, and so that's what he was subjected to. No, that was John's way of saying Jesus never lost control. He was stronger than any, he could have called the whole thing off anytime he wanted, but he allowed himself to be crucified because he knew at the end of the day, it's either gonna be him or us. So what does the strong man do? The strong man steps up and says, take me instead. Jesus doesn't have power, Jesus is power. Jesus doesn't just have authority, no, Jesus is authority. Jesus just doesn't have sovereignty, no, Jesus is sovereign, and there's a big difference. Jesus doesn't just possess the quality of being fearless, no, Jesus is fearless. And we are told that a day is quickly approaching when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and recognize that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and it's at that point in time that all the evil spirits and dark forces will be subjected to punishment for all eternity. Let's wrap the story up, pick up in uh, verse nine. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. We love bacon. Verse 13. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Can you imagine that? The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and, and the one who had had the legion sitting there All right, pay attention to this detail. He was clothed in his right mind and and they were afraid. 
It's as if in this moment, this dude's community remembered, oh yeah, he's a person. He's been, he'd been made in the image of God. Mark said that, that he had a very calm demeanor and the people were surprised to see him sitting down and, and wearing clothes. And, and you know, just for the record, okay, I'm pretty sure that the definition of hitting rock bottom in life is when the biggest surprise your old neighbors experience when seeing you for the first time in years is the fact that you're actually wearing clothes. <laughs> How many of you have that neighbor? Like, yeah. All right, a few of you, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if the standard could get any lower. Wearing clothes, good job, you made it. And yet, through this dude's transformation, we can identify the last most important point. And look, here's the deal. This is the most important point of the entire talk. This is what the entire talk has been leading up to. It's why I believe you showed up here today and you don't know why. Point goes like this. Who you are, who you are is greater than what you did. Who you are is greater, is greater than, than what you did. Now, that may sound cheesy. That may sound like a, you know, a bookmark you might buy at a Christian bookstore or some kind of cheesy Facebook post, okay? I recognize it sounds a little bit like a bumper sticker you might find in Colorado Springs. Some of you get that. And yet, Jesus crashed his own funeral so that our worst moment wouldn't be our defining moment. Let me put it to you like this. The gift of salvation, what Jesus offers us because of grace, is available to everyone who, who is listening right now. And so think about it like this, that, that when you decide to trust Jesus with your life, in that moment, an exchange takes place, okay? Jesus exchanges your scars for his scars. You may define yourself by, by your wounds, but, but Jesus offers to, to define you by his wounds, you may define yourself by your wounds, but Jesus offers to define you by his wounds. Do you believe that? I mean, isn't there at least a little part of you that, that wants to believe in this? And, and so do you trust that, that, that who you are is greater than, than what you did? Let's get real. I mean, it's what you guys do best here at Flatirons. Honestly, I think one of the main reasons why we fail to become our potential is because deep down we see ourselves through the lens of what we did or what happened to us. And you see, shame is what convinces us of just the opposite, that what we did is greater than who we are. That's what shame says. And it's very believable at times. Now, you might think that, you know, since I'm a pastor, I'm, I'm really good at living out what I tell other people to do. Mm. Can't tell you how many weekends I show up to church and the last thing I wanna do is get up on stage like this and teach because I know I'm about to tell a whole lot of people to do something that I have failed time and time and time again just that day. A weird thing about my role is that people automatically think that I'm better than I really am and there's a lot of pressure to put on a smile and to be somebody that I'm not. Here's what I mean. Nearly every day I battle depression and anxiety I'm a part of a very elite group of pastors that can say they've been fired from a church before. There are some days when you know, anxiety and this feeling of panic is so real and so paralyzing that, that just to get up out of bed is like, it seems impossible. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> I know a lot of you feel that way. I remember uh, three years ago, I, I was preparing to, to come out here with Jim and a couple of your staff members to go up uh, into the uh, mountains for, for a men's retreat. And 
One of the homework assignments before going on the retreat was you had to ask three of the closest people in your life, you had to ask them two questions. The questions went like this, what are three things, what are three things that, that you like about me? And then the second question is, what are three things that, that, you, would, that you would change about me? And so I was prepared for this. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, there's not much that I would probably change about myself. They would have to really look hard. I gotta tell you, what surprised me most, okay, what surprised me most is that the three things that each of them would change about me all said the exact same thing. And one of these guys is actually on your staff. He's gonna remain nameless, Jesse's preaching in a few weeks. Um, (laughs) Here's what they said. They said, Patrick, if we could change one thing about you, it's this. We think you have an anger problem. And that just really ticked me off. (laughs) I haven't talked to him since, you know? (laughs) Didn't really connect the dots till earlier this year. I'm at home with, with our three kids. We've got three kids. They're aged uh, six, I'm sorry, seven, six, and three. People always hear that, and they think, well, you've got a lot of kids that close in age. You must really like kids. Until I say, nope, I just really like my wife. <laughs> if she ever leaves me, I'm going with her. That's what I determined a long time ago, you know? <laughs> <laughs> It was one of those days where just my patience was being constantly tested and, and I had none left. I was stressed about something going on at, at church and they were just on my last nerve. They weren't listening at all and they had just made a mess in our living room. And so I said, kids, get back in here and clean this mess up. Well, they ignored me. And so I start yelling, kids, get back in here and clean this stuff up. And I took one of the toys, which was like a, a, a metal car and I took it and I threw it across the room put a big old gash right in our drywall. Some pastor you are. Right at that moment, I realized, yep, I got, I got to keep my anger in front of me. It has the potential to blow up some of the most important parts of my life, but you know what? Even, even deeper than that, my anger is usually the result of being frustrated with myself for not having more things in my life together. And so let me ask you, isn't there a part of you that believes that Jesus is in love with a better version of you that you constantly fail to become? You think, well, Jesus, he's, he's only putting up with me, only for this phase, this season of life. I mean, he's hanging on simply because he's got this idealized version of, of who I can become. And, and so Jesus, he, he you know, uh, he, he, he's got this better version of me out there. And, and so he's in love with that. He doesn't accept me for, for who I am. And, and yet, what if I told you that God isn't disappointed in you? Now, I'm not saying, don't, don't mishear me, that, that, that God approves of your sin. He doesn't. But by definition, disappointment is being surprised for the worst. And so is it possible that it's impossible for, for, for Jesus to be disappointed by your sin? Because one thing we are told in the Bible, a guy by the name of Paul said that Jesus, he who knew no sin became our sin so that in return we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, the implication is it's impossible for Jesus to be disappointed by your sin because he became your sin. And he offers you a much better deal to to walk away completely free. You see, the reality is Jesus is much better at saving than we are at sinning. And so if that's true, 
What, what chains need, need to come off? In just a second, the band's gonna come out here and sing a song when they get back from their smoke break. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. <laughs> One of my closest friends currently fosters a boy that we're gonna refer to as, as Isaac. Isaac's about 10 years old. His mom and dad are, have been addicted to drugs almost his entire life, can no longer take care of him, so he's been in the foster care system in the state of Indiana for, for years and years and years. As a young boy, like five or six years old, he, he was told horrific things by his parents, like, you know, I wish you were never born. I wish we had aborted you. You, you, you were a mistake. You're trash. You're, you're worthless. Isaac's extremely bright, and, and due to his upbringing, he has severe attachment disorders. He, he doesn't share his emotions very, very well. He's a guy, you know, and he does that so he can protect himself. And having been in the foster care system for about three years, this pattern will take place. He gets attached to a family. They really like his first impression. They'll want to adopt him, and so they start the process to make that happen. And then a few months down the road, something will be said to him or he'll have some experience. It triggers some trauma from his past, and then all of a sudden, this other side of him comes out. And so families are like, we didn't see this coming. We didn't know he was capable of that. You know what? We just... We we just can't do this. And so he gets attached to a family and then he's, he's thrown out. And my friend and his family have learned that one of Isaac's coping mechanisms when he feels rejected or upset is, is to take a brown grocery bag and write the words stupid or he'll write garbage on the outside or, or worthless and then he simply puts the garbage, he puts the, the grocery bag over his head. And sometimes he'll walk around the house for, for hours, sometimes he'll just go sit in a corner it's his way of hiding and feeling secure. My buddy has a, a, um, a, one of his sons is named Charlie that's the same age as Isaac and the two of them are really close. They've become really good friends recently. A few weeks ago, Isaac was having one of his episodes. He got really angry, so he headed to the pantry, pulled out a brown grocery bag, wrote something on the outside and then he went, to sat, went and sat in the corner and they're sitting on the couch as a family kind of watching all this unfold, allowing it to take place, or watching a show, but what happened next, they were, not a, they, they were not prepared for. Charlie, their son, got up, and he evidently had had enough of Isaac reacting this way. And so he got up, and he went over to the corner where Isaac was sitting, and, and Charlie ripped the bag off Isaac's head. He got right in his face, and, and he's crying at this point, a 10-year-old boy with tears just coming out of his face, and he's, and he's getting right in Isaac's face, and he's saying, hey, look, you need to stop believing leaving those lies that you write on that bag. That is not how we see you. You are my brother. And the, and the things that you write on that bag, that, that's not who you are. That's not who you were. And that's not who, who you're becoming. And so it's time that you stop defining yourself in that way. That was six weeks ago. Isaac hadn't worn the bag since. You know, sometimes the longer you're gone and the further you are from home, the less you think a return is possible. The more you live with a grocery bag over your head, the more you put on a mask, the more you live with chains, the more comfortable you get. Bags become safe places so people don't discover who you really are. And so here's the deal. Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus... Jesus knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. What would change if you actually believe that? 
They're going to play a song here called Living Hope, and it's been played a lot here at Flatirons. And there, there are several lines there talking about how, how Jesus breaks chains and his power is greater. Here's what I want to do. Okay, as this song is sung, I just want you to, I, I don't know what's kind of come up. I don't know what a talk like this wells up inside of you, but I want you to really pay attention to the lyrics. And I want you to ask yourself, what, what would change if I allowed the cross of Jesus to speak loudest in my life? What would change? How much freer would I be? Some of us need to move from the hypothetical to reality, and we need to have a conversation with Jesus in the next few moments that goes like this. Jesus, break me free of these chains. I'm tired of trying to, to, to find healing and restoration and finding deliverance all by myself. I can't do it. I'm at the end of my rope. I need you to do it for me. Because when we're at the end of our rope, that's precisely where Jesus will meet us. And so I'm gonna pray, and during this song, you do what you need to do in the next few moments before you leave here. All right, let's pray. Jesus, because of what you did for us, what we did doesn't define who we are. And a lot of us, a lot of us hear whispers, we hear lies, we hear labels that have been thrown onto us in the past. And, and I gotta be honest, God, I haven't been there before. Like it, in that moment, it feels so believable. And yet, would you allow us to hear, maybe for the first time, or maybe to be reminded of the truth of who, who we are because of what you've done? It's in the name of Jesus, our living hope. Amen.